I do not apologize. Anything that comes out of the mouth is um, um, orifice of anything we say. Yes. Gross. <laughs> it's a PG <laughs> podcast. It's n- I never said it was like R-rated. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm not apologizing for anything. <laughs> This is the Things We Do podcast, a podcast about film, life, television, culture, mental health, and all of that fun, jazzy stuff. Today, I've got my special guest and friend, Peter David Allison. Hello, welcome. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Marty. No worries. Thank you for joining me. Um, first of all, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself and what you do and who you are in general. Cool. Uh, my name is Peter David Allison. I'm an actor, a director, writer, You know, acting mostly, but I've done a reasonable amount of the other things, uh, working principally in theater, but occasionally in film and voiceover and things like that. The funny thing is, I will say about you first and foremost, people say this always about you who know you, that your voice is exceptional. That's I, very, very exceptional voice. I've been told this, yes. <laughs> Does that Was that something you noticed at a young age, that you were kind of like had this kind of theatrical voice about you, or was it kind of just something that people started commenting on? It was something that uh, I didn't really notice until I was almost an adult. So when I was a child, my voice was a lot higher. Uh, And then by the time I was about 15, 16, it started to drop, as happens. And because of where my rather unique accent was already sitting and the timbre that my voice just took on, it became much more pleasant to the ear. And so... A lot more people were starting to notice the interesting quality that my voice had. Oh, okay. And like when you say interesting, ac- like unique accent, what do you mean by unique accent? Well, for almost my entire life, people have been wondering where I come from because I don't sound like I originate in Australia, but I do. I've lived here my entire life, and my family goes back five generations and over a hundred years in Australia. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So you have this unique kind of like fluctuating between like American or British yes. accent and, <laughs> and no one can place you. That's it. That's amazing. My, and... my vocal coach at Acting University said that I have an idiolect. So which which idiosyncratic dialect. Ah. It's, it's uniquely mine. It doesn't fit neatly into any particular accent that exists anywhere else in the world. That's awesome. Then, then because the yeah, if anyone has you know ever met Peter, if he's the the one thing everyone can say is like it's just it's kind of like that Tom Bakerish esque <laughs> voice, which um, is it's just unique. Mm-hmm. There's something you can't quite be like, oh, I distinctly know that that voice and where it originates from. Um, which a lot of people have voices which blend together. So that is like a quality yes. that I think you are exceptional on. But also, like, when it comes to acting and going back to acting, what came for, like, because you got, you've done a bit of a plethora of multiple different things, mm. um, what kind of, like, was it always theatre acting you were very interested in or was it kind of like the whole kind of everything? I became more interested in theatre acting when I started doing it. That's That was what was the main focus of acting that I studied at university. Mm. I was originally more interested in film because I, even now, even having acted in theater for much of the last, you know, decade and a half or so, I'm still more interested in film than theater as under like scholarly 
uh, scholarly purposes, not to degrade any of the great works of theater, obviously, and I've grown to appreciate them considerably more, but I've always been more of a film buff, but I've done a lot less film acting than theater acting, I think, because I've I've become quite accustomed to the thrill of the live theater, where yeah. you, you really get something different from that immediate response of an audience in the room with you, as opposed to you know, working opposite a camera, opposite another actor who might be blocked partially by a camera and, you know, waiting until whatever it is, is online or on screen or what have you to get the response then. That's, yeah. That's great when it all comes together, certainly, but there is, there's no way to feed off an audience on film, obviously, so... No, and I think that, you know, the, there is something to be said about, like, theater theater acting where it's kind of like as you say you're reacting to an audience and and their engagement with it but also to your co co uh, conspirator co -stars, yes. yeah um and i think with film it's it's very stop and start mm. because you know and this is what i've discussed with quite a few people it i feel with film when you start doing a scene um it's it's very much like you're always thinking okay well i might film the ending first and then i gotta you know work my way back to where i was at the beginning yeah so when you watch something in sequence it it suddenly makes a lot more sense but because you're not doing that in a situation in theater mm. um unless it's like an absurdist piece or anything like that and where it is you know sometimes in different orders and the scenes yep. tell different points in the story you're always kind of like mentally noting that the scene is linear mm. like that scene is linear also by the way anyone who can hear the thunderstorm in the background we are recording this thunderstorm so um ignore the lightning um or don't yeah or enjoy don't. enjoy the lightning but i feel like that then puts you in a kind of unique kind of bubble as an actor mm. like you you have the ability is is film something eventually you want to just really sink your tink, oh, sink your teeth into? <laughs> I do want to do more film. I have a number of film ideas of my own, and I, I find just I'm drawn more at this point in my life, at the very least, to the theater. I guess. Yeah, because I mean, like I saw you years ago. Like this is going back um, probably about four years, and I remember the scene, the play that I saw you in was. Um, done uh, with Abigail Honey in it. I can't remember the life of me. Oh, you saw Rossum's Universal Robot. Yeah, I did not know that. I did, and I enjoyed it very much. And I liked your character a lot in it because <laughs> he was kind of a, like bit of a buffoon, and but also a bit snarky and a bit like in. He was very in your face. Yes. Um, and he was a like what was he? He was he, like a professor or something like that. Or he, he was a. A particular sort of scientist. So in, in the play, uh, Rossum's Universal Robots by Karl Chapek, uh, my, my character is one of a number of scientists working in this factory that builds these primeval robots. So I believe that my guy was in charge of programming or something. Yeah. So, sorry, it's a long time ago. It's a very It's a very dense play. It has a lot to say on on mankind and, and like, what it means to be alive <laughs> but it's it's very interesting because it's one of those plays that you kind of go oh okay i can look at it back and go oh well we're either fucked or we're not <laughs> very uh, much so uh, but it, i mean when i saw you in that and i i came back afterwards and i i remember thinking you're you were one of those actors who stuck out like, the, you know, there was a plethora of actors on, mm. on those scenes. But I think it was one thing that I remembered particularly about you 
was the the way you held you commanded every scene that you were in and it didn't even though you were like a supporting character to the other characters you were there like you go oh okay that's that guy again and he's coming in he's doing his thing he's going so i think in terms of like characters it's it surprises me because i think that was one of the things that when i was like you know getting to know you and everything i was like surprised you weren't in more films which kind of made me go huh this needs to happen more (laughs) Um, because, because I feel like when you start as an actor, it's very hard. Like, when did you start getting, like, how old were you at the time when you started? So I started studying acting full time in 2006. So 15 years ago. So I was just about to turn 18, basically. Oh, wow. So, so I'd, I'd known I'd wanted to be an actor since I was a child, but for reasons that are lost to time. I never really pursued it as a child. I did. I waited until I was an adult. And in a way, that was kind of the right move because when I was an adult, I already had the, the strength of my voice and I was a, always gave off a, a slightly more mature presence than when I was 18. Like I've, I've been cast as much older men almost my entire career. Like I'm pretty sure that the guy I was playing in Rossum's Universal Robots was probably meant to be 40. <laughs> <laughs> or older so yeah i mean it's kind of it's kind of funny that you say that because you're what 30 um, 33 i'll be 33, 33 so, so yeah. you're essentially you're as old as my brother which to me is not old <laughs> um very young mm. but i mean you it's funny because i think people associate that like maturity when you're 20 or something something i know friends who are bang on 20 at like 22 and they yep. look like they're 35 hmm. and they can pass for 35 year olds it baffles me if i shaved my beard i would look 12 again <laughs> um but i think it's one of those things like because you're so like you know you when you have a full beard because i'm i've met peter like throughout continuous shaving periods <laughs> <laughs> your time and i think one of the things that i remember talking about was like the f- we can't he came along to a read through and everyone was just commenting on the beard and the <laughs> fact that you hadn't shaved for covid um because there was no gigs there was just nothing so you was just like why not let it go yep. and i think it was for something else as well that was like you were keeping it around for it wasn't just the the program um, the thing we were doing of something else um i honestly don't remember it it was almost certainly because of covid <laughs> My my appearance changes entirely based on whatever show I'm doing. Like right now, I've got a little mustache and my hair is short. I hadn't cut my hair in, in two years. Uh, so, and I, I did it for The Wizard of Oz because I wanted to look as much like The Wizard of Oz as I can. But that's also kind of like, um, I think with like appearances and everything, that is kind of unique because some actors don't change their appearance dramatically. Mm. They kind of keep the same look you kind of have always evolved with whatever is chucked at you kind of a little yeah. bit. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a school of thought that there are two types of actors. There's your stars and your character actors. And they can inter, like, intersect, obviously. You can have people who are often markedly different from scene to scene, from role to role, from film to film, from show to show, uh, who will become very famous. And you can have very famous people who without necessarily changing their appearance will still adopt very different characteristics and i've always tended to lean more into the more uh, more character actory side where you know you are essentially meant to disappear i yeah. guess as an actor i like to disappear i like to 
differentiate the various characters that I have. I like to find new things in them, even if they seem similar to other characters I've played in the past. I like to find something new, something specific to them to really sort of focus on. And often it is appearance. Sometimes it's just little details in the voice. Sometimes it's as simple as just you put on the costume the first time and the character is there in the costume. I've had that before. I know I know Lawrence Olivier said that he used to build his characters from the shoes up. Like he'd find the pair of shoes and then he'd, he'd roll yeah. from there. So that's not to that level necessarily, but that's what I find. I like to really focus on differentiating my characters so that any audience who's seeing me for the second, fourth, 20th time will say, oh, that's something new. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Even though I'm often cast for very particular characteristics or qualities like the voice, I will often radically change them as I think suits the character and as, as the director wants. I think that, though, that makes you very flexible as an actor. And that is like a... Com I think... So when I find with directing as well, it's kind of a nerve-wracking thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize how nerve-wracking it is to be a director. Because people assume directors are like, oh, cocky. They're kind of like all over there. But a lot of the time you're kind of reserved and you're kind of going... I don't want to tread on your toes because I know you're doing your job, mm. but I kind of want to shape you into a, a different direction, but I don't want to be like, hey, don't do that, do this. So you're kind of in this weird balancing act where you go, could you do it? Could you try this way? Or could you do it a little bit differently? And I think my, like, my experiences is never say like no to an idea or, you know, if they throw you something, go, actually, that was better than any ideas I had. Mm. So I'm going to also just let them do their thing. And some actors really do bring a lot to the table. Like I think, I think one was unique was when we did, um, you know, like every time we because I you know periodically do Doctor Who scenes, but not just Doctor Who stuff. Like I've done various things. I think mm. it's always like it's a learning curve. You have to kind of throw yourself into the deep end, strip everything away that you know about previous experiences and start afresh. It's like a new canvas every time, and then go into it and be like, this is good, this is bad. And I think also, I just like people having fun. Like, it's entirely just go have fun with a scene. Do a scene once, no direction, have a wild time. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. And I think the only thing that doesn't always land is probably the actions because no one entirely knows where to be and what to do. Yeah. Is that your kind of experiences also with directing and acting? Or is it kind of just, you know... I, I'm of the opinion as an actor that the best thing you can be is director-proof effectively yeah. you're you're here to make a director's job a lot easier so that they don't have to tell you how to say a line a certain way or how to emotionally respond a certain way you know they can just sort of point you in the right direction and be like okay now i need you to stand here and i need you to say this and be sad and then you say this and be sad you know you need to do the homework already is is what i feel as an actor you know i i pride myself i suppose on working to a, a quality where most directors that I've worked with haven't had to worry about me. Like they've, they've been able to focus on other things because a director of course has a million things going on. Yeah. Know? So I'm, I'm of the opinion that the best thing I can do is to not complicate a director's life. You know, <laughs> do, do the homework, know who the character is as much as possible, know the lines, how to say the lines, you know, know the emotion so and if they have you know if they ask you what do you think this line means be able to answer them like, yeah as as a director i think doing the homework is is equally important certainly but 
you know, you can have a million ideas in your head of how a scene should look or could look and then have something completely different brought out by your cast. And I think you're, you're right. There is a necessary adaptability that yeah. a director has to have to changing the idea that exists in their head with the actual realities of what their cast are capable of, which will often be far more than what they think, but will sometimes be not at all what they expected. Yeah. And I think it's also with, with emotional beats, it's it's very much finding the right way to extract those beats mm. because not every actor kind of does it the same way Yeah, where you go, oh, oh, can you cry on command kind of thing. A lot of the, like, sometimes I know, like, you know, when I was younger, I could cry on command. Like, it was just easy. The older I got, the harder it became. And I was like, I lost that ability. And now I have to listen to music, like certain music to get myself into that kind of like feeling again. So it's very interesting to where people's brains kind of go and how they develop because skills that are very easy when you're young suddenly become much harder and they have to be like retaught and like the tactics that you'd think would make 100% sense and don't suddenly. Absolutely. Um, and that's not to discredit any actor, but that happens to everyone. Like mm. it just, you know, there's always things that become more difficult as we get older. Um, but I remember th when I used to do acting in high school, it was very much like having stage presence and everything was easy to me. I loved that. Now I couldn't get up in front of a stage of people. I'd be absolutely terrified. Don't know what happened. I think like, but it, it's one of those things like, Whereas, you know, talking behind, you know, you know, a microphone is easy to me. Talking mm. to people is easy. So there's never, like, there's always a different way of being, you know, ha finding those abilities again, but just doing it. True. Um, and pushing yourself through out of your comfort zone. I think in your experience, what has been the hardest, like, experience for you to, to in any sort of situation, whether it's acting or directing, what has been kind of like the hardest thing you had to kind of like push yourself over? I think the... The hardest thing I've ever worked on uh, are are when you have a director who is uncertain. You know, I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. Oh. I won't name names here, but you you occasionally will get a director whose vision is either isn't necessarily fully clear or changes continuously. So I oh, yeah. I worked on a on a show once a few years ago where. The director, lovely person. I, I won't. I won't be bad mouthing this person in any way. But their their vision would change on on the spot, and it could change in radically different ways. They just suddenly have an epiphany where, after you've been doing something a particular way for four weeks, they'll be like, "Try it a different way. That way was wrong." Like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> It was very, very frustrating. We got a really good show out of it, though. So whatever, whatever wild epiphanies they were having in the in the dark of the night uh, managed to come together in the end. But as an actor, it was very, very annoying. It's like smacking your head against a wall. Just yeah. please, I just, we just need to do a tech run. Please <laughs> stop directing me now. We should be past <laughs> that point. <laughs> that's that's so funny that you say that because I know. Um... You get to, I think it's also the director brain. Like you're automatically always thinking, oh God, I could do this a better way. Mm. And I think it goes down to the final product. The moment you see it in front of you, you still in the audience or in the theater just go, yep. I could have done that better. Like it never stops. And I remember, you know, like watching, I think the best thing for any director is go away for five, uh, a few weeks after you've done a few rehearsals, mm -hmm. go away for a week. Don't look at it. Then come back in fresh. 
because the moment you keep thinking about it, it's going to kill you. Um, but yeah, every time, like every time, I know so many short films that ended up never getting, like never getting released because mm. the director would watch the edit, they would get to a complete edit and they'd still go, I could have done that better. I will go back and do it better. And then they never do. Yeah. And that's not to say, that's not to disrespect anyone, but that is an ego thing. It is a pride thing. And they think they, then it's the be all or end all. And it's not really, I can't think that people forget that this is a little bit of a just, it's art. It's kind of, you know, fun. It's, you know, non It should be non-stress. We make it very stressful. We do. <laughs> um, but yeah, what's your opinions on that? Because, you know, w- with the whole idea of the industry is the serious professional people and then the, like, you know, the indie art. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like they they kind of start to blend a lot nowadays. Hmm. I think there's a sense that a lot of us have that art isn't ever finished in a way that as long as we keep changing it or doing something new to it, it isn't done. But art is arguably done at any number of stages in the process of making it. You know, this is a whole philosophical can of worms, I suppose, you know, is, <laughs> yeah. is, is the star Wars that the kids in 1977 saw different from the remastered one that I saw in 1997, 20 years later. And is that different from the one on the Blu-ray where the Ewoks blink, you know, are they different films? Cause they're kind of a different experience. They're similar at their base level, you know, 90% the same, but there's differences in it. Yeah. Is the art ever finished? Was it finished in 77? Was it finished in 97? Was it finished in 2010? You know, some people, they just see the process and they put a lot into the process. And the idea of finishing it, of having it out in the world and saying, this is done, this is complete, enjoy, it becomes a real like psychological head spin for a lot of people. I know I've had that in the past where... You know, you, you, you see something partway through and then you just can't finish it. Yeah. I mean, what's I kind of think that the only time that's ever happened to me, this was years ago, but I remember it was mostly down to one actor pulled out and I just ended up going, no, I'm not going to recast it. It was too, I had one scene that we filmed and it was too complicated to organize again. Then I was mm. like, that's going to the wayside. Um, and it's an unfortunate thing, but I think it was also, it, it, for me, it's always been put on hold because of casting issues, because actors are pulled out or anything like that, and due to personal reasons, and by the by, but it just becomes like a hassle in the back of your head to be like, I don't have the effort, the mental capacity to recast, because I've already got my cast in my head, and I don't want to kind of like let that go, and then I have to kind of just walk away from it for a bit and then come back to it. So there's a whole like, there's a whole balancing act with it, but I I do agree there is, like, no art is, you know, when does it it also, like, end? It is so silly because, not in a bad way, but it it literally is, I have high ideas, like, of stories, and I'm like, oh, I could redo that, or I could re, like, not even reboot it, but just edit it better, or I could make it different. And that could sit on your hard drive for, like, you know, five years, ten years, and finally get it done. I have a I have a short film that's been in the editing bay for four years. Oh, okay. So it's it's nearly done. <laughs> I just there, you know, it was very hard to find time to actually work on it. I'm not a great editor, so I've been editing it with my cousin, who works in the industry, right, in that side of the industry more than I do. I think it's looking really good. We finally got the music done for it because the composer had some 
you know, personal issues that he had to work through, you know, neither here nor there, but we're, we're very close. Now I just have to find the time to, to finalize it and then release it into the wild. <laughs> I very much would like to do that. <laughs> is, is, is it nerve wracking as well, having a film that old and then going, oh, okay, that's going to be safe. <laughs> it's just weird looking at myself that young. <laughs> You're just like, well, that's four years ago. And let me just process that. Um, I think though, with all of that, it, does that make you kind of look at old performances as well and just go, D- did I do it right? Could I redo it and do it better? I, um, try, I try not to think about it, honestly. That's that's commendable. <laughs> not a lot of people could do that um, and, like, prevent themselves. I think there are very few things that I'd, I'd redo if I could. And there's only been one one show that I've ever done twice so in 2016, I did a show called The Great Divorce, which was based on a, a book by C.S. Lewis, a friend of mine, oh, yeah. adapted it for the stage. And then we did it again in 2019. Some of the cast were, were changed around, uh, you know, we were in a different theater, had a bit, a bit higher budget. You know, so it was very much the same thing, just a little bigger. And I don't know if my performance in the first one or the second one were better, but I do know that in the second one, I'd had a further three years and 20 some odd shows like under my belt after it. So I'd, I'd had a lot more time to get better as an actor in theory. So, yeah, but I don't think off the top of my head that I did anything noticeably different where if you saw the one in 2016 and the one in 2019, you might say, Oh, he's, he's very different this time. <laughs> Yeah, I I feel like also with did that come across with directing as well? Like, was that something that you kind of do with directing, always refining in terms of plays and stuff, or are you very good at you know just kind of letting go once it's? I I personally find that I I am very willing to to let the actors create their their characters by themselves. Maybe for some actors that's not enough. Maybe for some actors that's you know they need or they want to be pushed they want to have notes they want more direction um and as an actor who prides himself on not needing a lot of direction from most directors you know maybe that's difficult for me to give is a lot of notes but i i i like the idea that actors are capable of creating their own characters yeah. i said to a, a cast once you know I don't mind how, like, what process you use. If you have to write notes on every single page of your script to, to remember where you want to go, you know, to, to get the emotional blocking beats and everything down, that's fine. Absolutely do that. And if you need any help, I will help you. And if you don't need any of that, if you've internalized all of it, then absolutely go ahead. As long as we get the show up on the stage, I'm happy. Well, that's great. So that's very, like let them do their their part and their well, I, I had faith in my cast and i think i, I with that cast i was right to they, they created a, a very lovely piece and i just had to point them in the right direction you know yeah stand stand here stand there <laughs> i mean it, with casting as well and something that i've actually never asked anyone um is like that a nervous process to when you go in for auditions or you kind of like think like, Oh, am I going to get this? Or is it very much you're used to it now of like that whole process? I have become used to it now, uh, where 
you know, not getting cast in something doesn't bother me uh, and getting cast in something is still very exciting. There are definitely auditions that you walk out of and you're like, I think I've got that or I think I've got a good chance at that. And some we walk out and you're like, oh, well, I guess if, if that one doesn't come through, I, I guess we'll just have to look for something else. But it was much more nerve wracking when I was younger, certainly. I, I didn't audition for proper theater for quite a number of years because it was just a really frightening experience, I guess, putting yourself out there. Yeah. And, you know, oddly, oddly enough, by the time I was in Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, that's that was the one where after I got the audition for it, I I knew that I could do this more consistently i could i could do auditions successfully because it was just such a confidence boost because in 2017 that was my third show that i'd successfully auditioned for and a lot of shows i'd done in previous years were essentially as favors to people who were like i'm doing this show i think you'd be good for x role would you like to come in and do it and I'm like sure why not you know it happens sometimes when you've got smaller independent companies or you're working with students as I often do where they just they call you and if if I'm free I'm I'll, I'll come in yeah so actually getting three auditions successfully was incredibly uplifting I cried I cried after I got the, the Rossum's Universal Robots uh, role not even because it was like a show I'd wanted to do all my life or a character that I wanted to do just it's a real confidence boost. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, like that's something that I never sort of thought as well about because um, you don't really hear of that side of the kind of coin where it is like you're kind of – because I know a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of my friends are also, you know, I know I we were talking before we recorded like how important networking is mm-hmm. and whether or not you're a good networker. But once you're kind of like in something and you're blindly auditioning with people you do not know, that's a different story. It's like mm-hmm. – um, and it's probably like I remember someone a while ago said I'm a professional. Like to me that I was a professional. I said no, no what? <laughs> and and to me professionalism, like I think it's it it does come down to it because they you know I've been doing this for t- almost I uh, ten years, and that kind of to me is insane. But at the same time, there is an element where it's like I should say I'm a professional, even though I don't think it. There is. A professional side of that so to kind of have our young selves and go well we may not get it the opportunity might not be there but there was there were so many opportunities that i think have been duds or haven't got anywhere i still work on some student films like they they're nice it's nice to educate and help people um there's no nothing against students learning a lot of the times you'll find the things that kind of grime on you because they they don't understand something or they're just forgotten about it and that's a whole learning curve but I think the advantages that you have with the older is is kind of just knowing experience and passing that experience on, which a lot of people kind of forget because we kind of go, we're better than this and we can do we can do better. Hmm. But but realistically, like sometimes just doing a favor for a friend might be the best thing you've done in a year because all the other things that you've actually got auditions for haven't been that like they've been fulfilling but they haven't been like oh i really love that idea or i just kind of want a thing that just kind of takes my brain out and i can kind of hang with friends at the same time what's your approach on that because that that has two very different worlds where people you know don't like doing that some people just go no it has to be 
either paid gigs um, or you know or nothing else. There's a there's a very big industry which I get value on payment, but sometimes you kind of also be like, well, I'll lend a hand here and there as long as it doesn't consume my every waking moment. Yeah. Um. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? I am very much in favor of actors and artists in general being paid, certainly. But I am also, contradictorily, I suppose, not really interested in money like as a commodity. I, I never really have been. I, I don't really have an interest in earning huge sums of money. So if I could be paid to act professionally all the time, I'd happily do it. But like, I'm just as happy working with amateur theater, independent theater, community theater, student theater, you know, working on my own projects with no real expectation of ever being paid or making any money, expecting to lose money in most cases. Because, and again, this is just me. This is not necessarily, I'm not me saying this to anyone else out there. I think that the art in and of itself is usually just worth being a part of yeah the the creative process getting to meet with other fascinating and phenomenally talented people in you know on stage and behind the scenes you know working on really powerful stories really funny things as well emotionally powerful things and visually staggering things i've worked on a lot of productions that consumed many hours of my life after work or on weekends and i will probably be doing that until the day i die so really like you know absolutely if if you can get paid to work in the industry go for it for sure but i don't think that there's any sense in talking down to people who are just in it to be a part of of something to feel happy about i guess no and i'm and i'm i'm very much one of those people i think um, anyone who's listened to any of these episodes <laughs> would know that for a fact. Um, because at the end of the day, it's it's something that I remember saying to my parents as well. And I was like, I don't do this to get paid. I don't do this like I said it to um, my partner, and she and I have that conversation very often. Where it's like we don't do this. Like, yeah, money is great. It's nice getting paid, mm. but also at the same time, a lot of the paid gigs you do sometimes are very stressful and. Sometimes the unpaid gigs are also stressful, <laughs> but it, it really depends because I would never be going back into these situations and being like, oh God, I like, you know, I want to feel stressed. Like I love everything that that comes out of this community because I've made great friends. I've made, you know, really collaborative situations, but I've also made things that I'm really proud of. And I think people forget about like all the fun things that you make. And then you go back and you go, oh, I did that on a scale of nothing. And, and you know, and stress about it for like high on weeks. Mm-hmm. And but I think it's also like one of the things that I I know that people kind of like do whenever they they start out is they kind of I remember like early in TAFE, you know, you had um, they were teaching us about like film and kind of the process of film, and the, you know they give you schedules and they'd be like, okay, you how many days do you want filming? You know, you'd write a seven-page scene and everything. I think when you start out, and anyone in any aspect, you don't realize how much waiting around there is until you actually start either filming or like actually acting. Like it's it's just so much talking, and then and then seeing the final product. And I think that's the like not everyone loves that. 
Not everyone likes the amount of rehearsals they have to do, but sometimes they're just necessary. It's like with you saying before with tech runs, mm. sometimes it's just like, do a, do a fucking tech run. Come <laughs> on guys. Like, please, because I need to know where I'm going to be on what queue yep. so I can do it all. And then just not have to think about it because the more you go and go and think about character and all these things, the kind of more you're taken away from all the other aspects that you need to think about, like sound and lighting and all, you know, this bizarre world that is, Kind of like, because theater, film, radio, you know, all these different mediums have their own foils and foibles. Like you just kind of go in and be like, oh, can we pause for a sec because of technical issues? Oh, why? I've got a flow going. And it's like, no, you can restart your flow. You can take it back to whenever. But as long as I get this right and it doesn't sound like shit later on. This is going to help you. But there's there's so many things that you've got to always accommodate for other people in in this grand scheme of, like, chess pieces. Hmm. Um, is that something that you kind of go, you notice that a lot of people in, in the industry kind of forget that they kind of, like, don't realize how many people actually kind of, like, help put them on screen or kind of put it all together? I'm fairly lucky that most of the people I've worked with have been very understanding and accommodating and i've always if not directly then at least tried to encourage young actors to become interested in the behind the scenes stuff like i still occasionally do behind the scenes like i just recently finished stage managing a student show and you know people were like why why did you decide to do this you're you're an industry veteran or or a proper actor and like i was bored at home you guys had a show i'm up for a show let's do it and it was a really fun show like it was one of the most fun experiences i've had in my life was it that fun because it was the first time i'd been in a theater in over a year maybe but <laughs> i'm not saying that it wasn't fun regardless like i genuinely enjoyed stage managing for the first time in quite a while and and i think that it's important for actors to appreciate what goes on behind the scenes you know what what goes on for a cinematographer, what goes yeah. on for a lighting and sound technician. You know, there's so much that goes on to making a show or a film or whatever really, you know, it, as good as it can be. And the actors are just one piece of it. Maybe they're the most like visual piece of it because you know, that's what the audience is, is emotionally bonding with. But without all of the other stuff, they're, they're doing it without costume. They're doing it without with lights. They're doing it on you know crappy video instead of on film or what have you so yeah so i'd always i'd always say that as a to a young actor become interested you you don't have to go into it you don't have to become a lighting and sound technician if that's not what you're called for but appreciate what what goes into making you look beautiful you know yeah and i think it's like the one thing that i commend you know covid you know got me into doing a podcast and i think it's also like i had so many friends who were soundies hmm. and i you know i ended up dating a soundie like it's it's one of those things that i kind of you know it's self you have to have self-taught and you kind of like sometimes be like you know i would love to do lighting i would love to give it that a shot and do that as professionalism and you know do all you know become a camera operator and do all these things because at the end of the day i gain more skills and jack of all trades kind of mentality but and he's kind of that mentality of just being like, this is fun. This, you know, like one thing I never thought I would ever love is producing. 
I love organizing people. I, I people like the most frustrating things in the world, getting them to all line up their schedules. Hmm. But when you do, when you do get them, it works charmingly. <laughs> but it's it's just a lot of emailing of someone going, yes, no, yes, no, I can do that day. Oh, I can only do that time, and then you kind of like formulate this plan and then someone will go oh i can't do this it's just it's an endless cycle yep. but it, it's it's soul crushing don't worry <laughs> i sell it um but yeah i mean like one of the things i really love is like asking people about dietary requirements like organizing their you know when they start their day when they end their day you know and, but also like making sure we keep to sh- like a schedule and everything like that and i remember when i did theater was one of the things I loved was like, and I worked in a theater for three three years and I loved every second of it. I worked in the Symbol Center um, in Chippendale and it was one of the funnest experiences. It was an usher there, but I met all the technicians. I met everyone who worked like, and they would, you know, the lighting techs there would get like complicated lighting char- sheets and they'd be like scratching their heads sometimes going, I don't know if this is exactly what you want, but sure. And I remember... Um, like every time I'd hear about it, they'd be like, okay, well, we're going to rig this up and you'd make friends with them. And they would tell you all the crap that would be thrown at them by these people bringing in their plays and stuff. And I remember this was part of uni group. And I remember uni students being like, like having their chair, their feet up on the theater chairs. And I said, sorry guys, you know, can you take your feet down? And they said, oh, why? And I went and just said, come on, guys, like, and just tapped him on the leg with my, like, walkie-talkie. And he was like, oh, that's assault. And I was like, well, technically, yes. But at the same time, what are you going to do? Tell my boss, and we're like, you tapped me on the leg? Like, this hasn't killed you. It's been the most gentle tap I have ever done. But it also was kind of like, you don't work here. I've got to follow my protocol and rules. And also, I've got to keep everyone safe. And and fortunately, you as a director who is, you know, the uni is actually paying for you to be here. It's not actually you paying a cent. It kind of have to listen to us because we're part of the faculty. So unfortunately, there is that legality to it. But it was, it was kind of interesting because I remember all the time you'd learn different things and how to handle different people. And I remember absolutely one of my favorite lighting technicians actually had an argument with one of the stage direct, like the directors of a play because he would refuse to talk to him because he didn't, he had an accent. And this guy, like the lighting technician, I think is, he was like Italian and he had a bit of an accent and he was just like, no, I'm out. And the the whole manager had to get involved. And I was like, this is the most disrespectful because they're coming here to kind of do a play, but they're insulting our technicians. I'm like, sorry, you don't come here and just, and this would pay, you know, they're paying for this venue. They're paying, and like, you don't come here and be like, your technicians are shit. And it's like, no. Like you just don't do that. No. You, you you get what you get if you pay the money. <laughs> so there was a there was always kind of like this thing where I remember going appreciate everyone what they can do, and I think it's also like the one thing that I stand by with Olivia Wilde kind of example. Don't be a shit on when you go to set because like prime example is just be a nice person. Come to set, be a nice person. Try and help out because I also remember, you know, like unions and stuff Mm. and everyone used to back in the 80s and 70s and even now, like in the US, have unions and we have unions and they're kind of like iffy a bit. They're good, but they're a bit iffy. But I mean, the thing I really hate about unions is I get they're protecting you, but they kind of also don't want you to do any other helping job. They're just Mm. like, you stay to your role and then you don't affect anyone else and you just stick to that. And so it's amazing when I go on to set and so many people are like, oh, I'll help you out. And then you meet the other people like, no, I'm... 
I'm not going to do anything. And you're like, I don't know if to hate you or just understand that you're also just here to do your job. But also, like, we need, like, 20 other people and you could just five minutes of your time then you could be spent helping us all. So there's kind of like that mentality where it's like I want to help out as many productions and help as many people as I can, Mm. but also within capacity of my own ability to give is that the same for you like you know where you can only give what you can give i i feel like i feel like i'm always trying to help wherever i can on whatever production i'm working on that said i i feel like i also need to acknowledge that someone who has worked on a lot of shows which were often back to back i'm very blessed to have worked with a lot of directors who were very understanding that i I was going to need to disappear quite a bit. Like, in 2019, I, I worked on 11 different productions. Oh, wow. Two sh- two short plays. One sh- uh, one show I stage managed. So, so two 10-minute two shows with Short and Sweet. One show I stage managed. Uh, and then seven full-length shows. Um, and that meant that I had to corroborate timetables with a lot of people to make sure everyone understood you know i i will be here right now and i will be here right now i'll be there for show week and you know just forgive me if i'm not here for this rehearsal but um i got another show to do i i i did 10 weeks of 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 two different shows back to back at one stage and very graciously the directors of both of those shows uh allowed me like the the week of bump in of the first one I, obviously I wasn't going to the second one but the you know I I was still rehearsing for that that show the next 6 weeks and then moving into the next show after that and so I was very lucky to be working with creative teams who were willing to let me do that yeah because it's a big ask I suppose especially if I I played some pretty sizable roles in a few of those so not having a prominent character be around for a rehearsal is often just it's it's just kills a rehearsal yeah it's it's funny when it's minor characters but then when it's major characters but i also kind of like go every character is a major character in my books which um but no i do agree with you it's it's very like challenging because one thing that someone said to me recently was you work for you know they said to me it's like you work full time how do you find the time to do anything and i was like i make time it's a lot of the time it's just working out what my schedule should be and then telling people I can make that day, I can't make that day. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of balancing act. But, yeah. you know, people obviously have to be accommodating for that. And not everyone in our industry gets that. Not everyone understands that a full-time or a casual job means you just sometimes have to take, you know. It's like that other thing which is, you know, if you're doing something for free and, and some people just say to me straight up, it's like if paid work comes along, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take it. But I also respect that because they're being up front. And I just go to them, look, um, I, you know, sometimes I say now, it's like, look, I need someone who's, you know, actually can just make the day. It's nothing against you. I just know that paid work's going to get in the way of this because if I, it comes to a week beforehand and you go, I've got paid work now, I'm going to be like, oh, fuck. Like, what do I do now? And that's just going to cause stress. So, you know, you just kind of like, if you know up front, it's amazing kind of like the mental kind of like capacity you can go oh okay that's annoying but you know what we'll make it work or we won't and we'll just work on something later and there's so many people who i've 
yet to work with that I've said multiple times and, you know, that both of us have said, gone, I want to work with you and I want to work with you and our schedules have never lined up. Um, and it just happens. It just, you know, years can go by where you, before you kind of go, oh, we're on the same gig together and suddenly we can just yep. frolic in this wonderful... I believe we were meant to work on something like four years ago, Marty. <laughs> Look... We're getting there. We're, we're getting there. Could, uh, <laughs> Look, he he makes a good play because it's four years old. The stuff that we're actually meant to finally do, and we're doing it. But it, it's it's so funny because um, the first time was a completely different cast, and now it's a, a new cast. And Peter is the only returning actor to this new cast. Um, did you ask me to return, or did I just see the audition notice? I don't even remember. No, I asked you to return. Right, right. I but I also did notice you saw the audition notice. But I did ask you to return. I think I emailed you just as I send it as well. And I right. was like, I may as well send you the like email to say, hey, would you like to actually do this? And you were like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Very casual. Of course. Um, but it, it's always kind of funny because I remember every time I've ever gone like um, and not been able to do something, it's been kind of like a travesty. It's always been kind of like something that weighs on me and kind of goes, oh, I really wanted to do that and make it. And it's kind of one of those things that I try never to leave a project that Un, not done hmm. and it's it's something in me because it's just like it could be five years before i make it but then it's like finally i made it and i think the same with you know like day of the doctor which i talked about previously on the podcast that got released july last year that was on my hard drive for three and a half years wow. and it was mostly because i was going through a breakup at the time i couldn't focus on it the other factor was i like literally knew no one with visual effects skills i was kind of chucked into a bit of the deep end like by my own stupidity because mm. i thought i could do something and then couldn't do something and like literally just was like all right this is out of my zone and when it was all done and i found a friend who could do it and happily did it for me it kind of when it got released it got really good views and that was kind of when i was like okay well i've got all these old scripts that i wanted to do why don't i do those and try and make them on either it's cheap as chips, but have fun with them. And remember that it's cheesy Doctor Who. Let's ha let's have fun with it. Let's have a blast, and let's like recreate some scenes that either were never made or you know were originally audio and stuff, whatever. So I think that whole fun aspect has come out really fun. But also, there's so many other projects <laughs> that every time I just go, I'm going to make this thing, and then another project will just go on my table. I'm like, well. I need to also focus on you, but also like it's a constant battle. Um, but yeah, you're hundred percent right. Like the, I think, you know, this goes back to your full, you know, your film that is eventually going to get shot this year. I'm this <laughs> year. So <laughs> we, we say this, I think it's like the ironic thing of just any artist. Your, your thing is a, always going to be you know there's a poster out there which was a film that was meant to be released in 2020 and now it's all, it'll probably be released 2024 to be honest it's just it's it's it was like and it's the script's done the script was done i it's ready to go but we just kind of like cannot do it right now because of covid and also because everyone like had a like a lot of the people who were involved went through personal stuff and it needed to kind of like disband for as long as it could so, unfortunately, those things happen. Indie World is kind of like a good, in a way, a good place as well. Because I've I've never, you know, I've been a pro advocate of mental health. And I know you have too, where it's like everyone everyone very much openly talks 
this is how I feel and this is where I'm at mm. and don't kind of like beat around the bush, you know, just I need some time and then I'll come back to it. But I think one of the things that, you know, is good to remind ourselves of the indie world is we're very open. And if you kind of have this kind of like, I don't care about your mental problems, like, okay, well, hang on, take five because you should, because I'm not going to deliver if you don't care. And also I'm going to get probably annoyed and not want to work with you. There's a whole aspect of just... I think not everyone in this industry has mental issues, but a huge chunk do. And that's not due to the art. That's just due to life experience and a whole, you know, plethora of problems. What's what's your experience with that? Like, how's that sort of like happened with you? How have you kind of like vocally gone? Yes, things are bad in my life or things are good. Uh, You've, have you always been very open with that or is it that uh, very much a learning curve? I think that I, in, in 2018, um, I started uh, to suffer from very, very real and quite serious depression. Mm. Um, it was frightening mostly because I didn't know how it was going to impact my ability to continue to act moving forward because when, when it first hit, uh, and I'm just in a, an absolute obsidian black void, it felt like you don't know if you're going to be able to to get out of bed the next morning. And mm. and I'm very fortunate that I have a good support network of people, you know, my family and very close friends who were willing to, to help me through that. And, you know, now I'm on medication as well, which is helping with that. So I've managed to, to make my way somewhat further out of it. And a lot of people aren't as fortunate as I am in that regard. So, you know, I don't think that what I've managed to do is necessarily special it's just what i've managed to do you know uh, all i can do therefore is to be encouraging to other people who might be struggling far worse than i am that that it is possible to come out on the other side so i think as i've gotten older and had to go through this i've become more aware of what it means to to deal with mental health issues because the industry is a very easy place to find people with with mental health problems either because they have you know, long long seated problems from their youth their childhood and getting into the art is a way to deal with that where which you know you can create great art out of great depression and great sadness obviously yeah. but at the same time the industry itself can be incredibly crushing so balancing that i imagine for people who have those sort of issues must be incredibly fraught and also because of how difficult this industry is to actually work in where i've i've known great actors who at university who are incredibly phenomenally talented and driven and then they get out in the world and either they don't fit the types or they just can't find the auditions or they have one bad experience and they just they just drop it yeah and they just never come back and i can't really begrudge them that but it feels like such a shame to watch really talented people just 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 leave it behind entirely and i there were, there were passages where i was like that as well where presumably people thought i was a talented enough actor and i just wasn't acting in much or anything really or I was doing like really small stuff that wasn't necessarily challenging, stuff that I wanted to do, don't get me wrong, but 
stuff that wasn't getting my name out there or challenging my skills or working as really a networking experience or any of it. So, you know, the, the, the whole entertainment industry really does have a problem where you either get a lot of people who already have issues or it causes problems for people like, or it exacerbates problems for people. Yeah. So you really do need a good support network you've, in order to to get through this. You know, you... Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say all that. And, um, you know, if you do have any, like anyone listening, if you do have a great support network, but even if you don't, there are always like, you know, places you couldn't go to and support online and stuff. There's Absolutely. great, like great level of community out there. But I went, I remember like in high school, particularly for me, I had no, like I had a few friends who were support network, but I like lost them, most of them like leaving high school because I realized like they were only there as kind of like in between points. Mm. I've made some really awesome friends since leaving and it's been very vocal to me. But I remember, yeah, like a few years ago, like realizing, you know, one of my, one of my best friends, she was like, you've clearly got anxiety. Like you've got, you know, very much social anxiety and you get very de- like depressed quite easily um one thing that i remember a friend in high school said you you know it's very bipolar like your mood swings kind of go come and go so there was kind of like things that i remember early on and talking about and going okay well how do i see the world and it's only until this last year that i've been on medication and it's changed you know it's it's doesn't work for everyone because i'm not saying it's a, like a be alone or you have to be on meds but it does if it helps you it helps you and and also like seeing psychologists and seeing therapists and whatever helps really does help you get out of a thing but never be afraid to be like look i'm not at the right place right now as well it's not that i you know i just don't feel like i can express that part of myself and i remember in particular like how how like freeing it was when I think the first time I started publicly talking about um, some issues that I had, um, which I've already talked about on the podcast, where I was like talking about anorexia and like all these things that I never, when I remember first mentioning them, um, that they weren't kind of very comfortable. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, these perspectives, you know, growing up were kind of like part of my family or they weren't part of my family and they weren't influenced, but it was a lot of very much like, you know things that were younger and you know obviously like things that are as older but also you know i you know had a friend who passed away the other year and no idea you know i don't know what you know ended up happening but that i remember everyone once we were at the wake everyone saying i wish i could have done more and i was it was one of those situations where it was like he was the most happy person he would have looked after everyone else but you know you just would have never known, like, if anything was going on in his mind. And, um, you know, out of the respect of the family, I won't name them. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's just, it's one of those situations that I remember just going, this is, this is real. Like, this is, that was a very much a wake-up call for it's just like, it's always good to check in on people. It's, you know, because it's like that, they advertise those are you okay days and everything like that. But the arts is just like, in any industry, the COVID really hit and took everyone's mental toll, which... I think Melbourne had like high death toll because mm. of like COVID because they had the stream lockdown. And I think it's very privileged. Well, Sydney was very fortunate. We were very lucky. And I think that people, I don't want to say take for granted how lucky we are, but we do in a bit. And I think it's very fortunate that a lot of people here just go, look, this is, this is also, they're very big advocates to be like, 
you know, reach out and talk about mental health. YouTube is a great place for it. You know, people talk about it all the time. But yeah, the theatre now, I've noticed definitely have these group sessions where everyone goes and tries to introduce themselves and talk more openly about themselves Mm. because it's not just like I'm an actor or I'm a lighting person. I'm not going to say anything about myself and you're going to just know the only character that I've, like everyone's much more, progressive open and honest about it and it's funny talking to people of different ages and noticing how that wasn't as common yeah. like the the earlier you go back in the 80s and the 70s and even the 60s like my dad growing up i remember him saying talking about your feelings was not a thing like it was just wasn't for boys no um so yeah it's it's very like it's very different. I think we're quite in a position where we're only, you know, a few years apart, but we've been growing up in this world that is a much more, you know, you know, luxury, friendly, and yeah, we've 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 got a world now where people are more open with their emotions, which is quite a quite a blessing. But there's still a a real stigma. I think. Of, yes. Like I. Though I only really got true depression in 2018, I'd been dealing with panic attacks dating back as far as 2014, and Mm. I refused to do anything about it beyond just trying to deal with it myself, which was in the long term a a big mistake because it just continued to, to weaken me in ways that I couldn't see until it was too late in 2018 when it all finally crashed in. It was... Yeah. it was something I could have dealt with much much earlier I could have seen yeah. s- seen a psychologist I could have tried a medication you know, I could have anything but but I chose not to because you know I guess there's that little voice in the back of your head that says you know men don't have mental health problems yeah you know and I I'm not particularly enamored with gender s- stereotypes anymore of I've worked long enough in the arts to see how they don't really adhere in any real way, but there was still there. It was still a part of my my lexicon that that men don't men don't go to the doctor unless they absolutely have to. Yeah. Well, I've had a panic attack. I'll just I'll breathe I'll breathe through it and I'll be fine again in no time. But no, it just kept getting worse until it reached a point where I I couldn't ignore it anymore. It wasn't wasn't easy but literally like i couldn't ignore it anymore and and i guess for a lot of people it it gets even further than that like you say you know how many lives we've lost because people don't feel like they can speak up about about their problems don't feel like they can go and and get help don't feel like they have the support network that maybe they do you know like a few years ago i uh, someone i knew uh, passed away as well and I, I also won't mention names but you know they had hundreds of people at the funeral yeah you know just they had so many people who who loved them apparently like who who were shocked at the idea that they that what had happened had happened and you just didn't know it or couldn't feel it or didn't believe it we don't know but it was shocking to think yeah and i i think what i noticed you know when when i had the funeral and i got the phone call was i'd known this person since i was about five or six and it i hadn't seen this person 
really regularly for like quite a few years, but I ran into him in the street like in early 2020. And I just, it took me a while to register, you know, that they weren't around anymore. And I remember exact same situation when I went to the funeral, there were hundreds of people and it was very, it was very surreal because I remember sitting there and just going, you know, if, if they could see this, it would be an entirely different story. And I think it's one of those things that you just don't kind of think about mm. until it's there. And, you know, it's it's amazing what small people have an impact on your life. Like, you know, not even small people, like friends in general, like they're just, they're everywhere. Like any person who comes up to you in the street and says, have a nice day, will have an impact on your day. Mm. And it's, we kind of forget very easily yeah. how much, um, you know, it's, it, I think what I didn't realize, it was it was like my birthday. My birthday had recently happened and I got, you know, hundreds of people messaging me and everything. And I thought for a second, I was like, one, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they messaging me? And two, the other factor, I was like, actually, no, why? You know, these are my friends. But there were people who said, you know, thank you for being, you know, there when I'd never physically been there. But they were just like the fact that you support them through mm. different means. It means the world to people. And it's so... You know, it's so funny because from an outward perspective, we really do forget this. We do kind of think that we are invisible. And I suddenly realize how often and how lucky I am um, that a lot of people don't see me that way. Hmm. But, um, you know, and I know I know a lot of people don't see you that way as well. You know, that people praise you um, for being a wonderful person and a really good friend as well. And I think it's very fortunate for us to be in a position where we kind of like have that more commonly and it's especially through social media, mm. we're very easy to reach out to friends and be like, look, I'm having a bad day. Do you want to hang out and just kind of grab coffee or like have a chat? But it's very interesting to be like, also have those friends and be like, look, I can take five back and step back for, you know, five minutes and kind of like just, I need me time for a bit. And then they'll be like, okay, let me know when you need me. Like they're very good but yeah, it's it's very hard to watch, and you know my whole family has, apart from my mum, has had mental health issues. My brother and my dad, and I remember my dad when he went on medication. He was you know fifty fifty six fifty seven when he finally went on meds. I had left home, and I remember him saying to me, he came out and he said, "I'm sorry for all the years that I was a difficult father. Like I'm really sorry, and I, I never wanted to be like my dad." I never wanted to be that person, and I'm sorry that I ever, if I ever came across as that. And I, was, I just remember to saying to him, I knew you had mental health issues, and I didn't take any of that personally. I know that's hard for you to believe, but I didn't go, this is your fault. Like, obviously, you had a hard childhood, but I'm glad you've finally done something that's benefiting you. It's not, not in the end about me. It's how you feel, because it's a very... You know, people, I remember, like, I've had partners who say it's selfish to do certain things. And I never thought of self-care. Never thought of it in a million years. And now, you know, people, you know, 2020 was actually the best year for me. Because I was stuck in this apartment on my own. And I had nights where I was crying and, like, you know, just getting all my frustration out. And then in the end, I just went, you know what, I'm doing this for me. Like, I'm doing everything 100% for me and if I do it for someone else I'm doing it for the wrong reasons so you know sorry if that makes <laughs> if anyone thinks I sound self uh, selfish go fuck yourself because <laughs> it's, it's selfless 
it's completely you've got to be you know selfish you've got to you know selfish is not a negative trait you've got to be sometimes being like this is for me i need you know my time and my ability to be like how does this benefit me would you like would you agree with that statement in a way yes <laughs> probably not the way i I'd probably it. phrase it differently <laughs> yes i i like to 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 carry myself with a, a certain demeanor of of openness and and giving you know i like to say that i serve but you know like a knight like a knight serves and people say well you have to serve yourself too sometimes and i say that's how i do it you know i i don't think i can do anything better for myself than being there for other people yeah so you know maybe that's that's a part of my self-care is being being there for others in a way yeah so perhaps that's different to your own approach but it's oh no it's like... kind of it's, it's just who i am as a person and certainly i can be actually selfish at times i'm sure but i think i it's a big part of why i you know i still work in student theater and and I do unpaid shows you have someone says to me hey you want to do a thing you know if, if marty calls and is like hey you want to do a podcast i'm like yeah hell yeah let's do a podcast <laughs> it's, i know and i encourage it greatly <laughs> but it's, it's so true because i think one thing that i really appreciate about you is is listening you know hearing these stories and i remember it's one of those things that i i set out at the beginning i said this is a story this podcast isn't about me. It's also about the people who I interview. Mm. And one thing that I feel very fortunate, you know, with with you and with any guest, to be honest, is having that ability to listen to listen to your stories. Because I'm like, you know, like you, just very much like if I can help someone or I can be there for someone to support them or help them with a project, whatever it, whatever it is, I'll happily do that because... I'm going to have a laugh with a friend. Mm. I'm also there to kind of like do something kooky. And also it's, you know, whatever day comes along, as long as I'm crazy busy um, at work and I'm stuck there. Yes. But yeah, completely within reason, it's, it's entirely possible. And I think, you know, I remember so many projects that I've ever done, you know, like, you know, one we're about to work on and, you know, the, the enthusiasm that comes with the people that involved with mm. these is just, you know, it's amazing how lucky we, you know, it is to kind of just go, oh, cool, I get to hang out with these 12 people who might never normally hang out. But when you put them all together, they are the blast, like, you know, best experience and they have fun, they have a laugh, everyone has a great day. And then you go home and you go, oh, that was a million bucks. Like, that was worth my entire week. And I think, yeah, it's very interesting to hear that with the whole stage managing thing and stuff like, you know, to have that small experience where everyone goes, why do you want to, why are you here? Like, come on, Peter, you could have been doing better things with your time. And you're like, I had a great time. Yeah. Like, is that always something that, you know, people get still, you know, obviously kids still get surprised, but is that something that your friends get surprised with when you offer help as well? I hope not. (laughs) I, I hope that people are always willing to come to me for help. Like, Gen- genuinely i don't want to ever seem like i'm not someone that that you can you can approach that you can ask for help from and i'm not always qualified to help i have to admit like there are, there are certain things that i'm just 
not the right person to yeah. ask for help from, certainly. But if I can help, I will as to the best of my ability. And I, I you know, I have many friends who do often still come to me for for help in, in some small way. And I, I, I hope that everyone out there knows that I am always, always willing to do whatever I can you know, to the best of my ability. Yeah. I mean, you do. And I think, you know, it's funny because, you know, we'll go on to the topic about social media as well. You're very like your social media presence on Facebook is very much like, you know, the way you talk is, is very much your statuses, but there is, there is always things that I read about and I always kind of like go into your psychoanalysis, like readings of your big statuses. But I always think there's some things that you've definitely said on there where it's like, oh, okay, that makes me reevaluate how to think or how to like, you know, process an idea or maybe a movie, you know, whether in a movie review or something like that. Is that always a... <laughs> First of all, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, COVID made you start a podcast. I, I, COVID made me become a film critic, which is <laughs> something I never wanted to do. Can I just say, you did all the Avengers in Marvel. So, which I'm impressed with. Thank you. Um, but also like just reading your reviews and going, hmm. Yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> this is a terrible film. Hmm. But it, it, like, yeah, it's it's been funny because I'm I know you've posted music, you've posted like you've posted songs that you've played, you've posted acting stuff that you've done. Hmm. Like you are you are so socially active in terms of, but you're also it's always the kind of like thing that you know you kind of go okay is he critiquing stuff is he kind of like you know what's it thinking when did that like was that something you always did as well was it very with that you know because we'll talk a bit about your movie film critic was that something you always did or is that something you just fell into um i have for many years been using social media as its own art form i suppose yeah where i would I don't know why. I don't know why I started doing it like this, but I stopped using it for, for the most part, in the way it's intended to be used to sort of share how you're doing, what you're doing with your day, and to start sort of exploring the the, the depths of language, the depths of emotion. To I've 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 written entire like scripts and short stories that are that are on my own Facebook page. People have told me, that's a bad idea. Now Facebook owns like, oh, Facebook doesn't care. <laughs> they got other things to worry about. And they're not writing your statuses. <laughs> no. <laughs> so for as long as I can recall, like, when I was younger and I started on social media, like, it was often just a string of very, very sad and frightening things that that I'm glad I no longer do. But for the most part these days, I'm... I'm using it when I can, if I'm not reviewing a film or, or plugging a play or what have you. Just finding a sentence or a word or a story that appeals to me, that I want to, that I want people to sort of look at and ponder, I guess. People ask me, what do you mean by this? You know, what, what, what does this sentence mean? And I say, it means whatever you want it to. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm more interested in what people get from the things that I write than from whatever my intention with it was. I want to know what people think about 
about my words, about my choices, I guess. And some people have no thoughts on them. They don't care. They don't, they don't want to read them. And that's fine. Like, they're out there to be read or ignored as you like. But some people really interact with them. For some people, certain sentences, certain thoughts will resonate with them on the particular day or it'll make them ponder more about a particular nature of, of our world or our universe or of, of love and death and sadness and politics. It's, it's just something that I like doing, I guess, for, for whatever reason. And it'll never make me like Instagram famous or anything. <laughs> I, I withheld getting an Instagram page for a very long time because people were like, you should get an Instagram page. And I'd be like, it'd just be photos of the same sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th th to be honest, your Instagram page, page is very limited to what's on it. So yes. like this explains a lot. But also you're a very... <laughs> I've always, as I've said, I'm more a words person than a pictures person. Yeah. But but it's and it's funny. It's like what do they say? A picture tells a thousand words. Um, yeah. I've I've got a good thousand words. To go, yeah, so. you you give many thousands of words. But I think it's also like it's interesting because you talk about these quotes and stuff and you know reviews and stuff. That is very true. When I read your quotes, they're either from books or the, you know music or anything like that, and they're just they you know it's resonating with artists and ideas. Mm. And I think one of the most like you know, there's so many famous quotes out there. Now, and now kind of make us rethink you know and, and they were whether or not they were written in the 1700s they still resonate today mm. and i think that a lot of people you know forget a lot of that like they kind of just go oh words mean nothing and you know like the power of words is huge um so the, it's funny reading your statuses is much more enjoyable than reading half of the people's statuses where they do write about how their sandwich is that day and they yeah. go, oh, I was outside, by the way. And I was like, okay, cool. Glad you were outside eating your sandwich. <laughs> now tell me something philosophical. <laughs> what does this tell you about the world? Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot, there, there is a lot of people who kind of, I think, use social media as a platform or a networking thing. And I think it's really interesting that you use it more as a you know, a, a way of expressing ideas and thoughts and, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, interpretations of stuff, but also just your art. I think on some level, it's, it's a desire to be oblique. And I guess in a way, you know, everyone wants to be interesting. And I think the best way I could do it was to be oblique. Like, mm. You know, it's, like it'd be cool if I went on a holiday and I and I took pictures of myself on a beach somewhere. It'd be like, oh, he's having fun. But <laughs> it, it's much more interesting for me to ponder the you know how how the ocean is absolutely catastrophically enormous and powerful, and yet it always seems to reach a point where it cannot pass any further. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting philosophical statement that we have a beach because the ocean halts. And with global warming, it may well stop halting at some point. And oh. just move on up. Just move on up. Wow. But, you know, the, the beach is just the point where the ocean, this, this absolute destructive, chaotic, unpredictable force ends. And we sit there and we, we, we bring our children and we, <laughs> we have picnics and... You know, we, 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 we take off our shirts and we burn our torsos. <laughs> I never thought of it like that, where it was like this deep unknown, but that is the ocean. That is the ocean is everything we can't survive in. 
Mm-hmm. And um, let's, yeah, that's let's a, go down there and have fun. And yes, jeez, that's a very positive. <laughs> Um, but no, it's, it's very interesting that you kind of like, you know, have that mindset and, uh, you know, but I, I don't think everything is like, you know, you know, it's interesting as well because I go, I want to sort of bring us back to, you know, the whole idea of interpreting art and mm. how we kind of like think about art as a genre and as a thing. Is that kind of influenced on how you want to write stuff as well? Like in terms of like your experiences, but also just kind of like your perspective of the world and, you know, whether or not that philosophical side, does that always come into everything you try and do as an artist as well? For the most part, yes. I, the, the, the longest piece of like continuous writing ideas that I've had are very honest in a way about my own experiences with, with my mental well-being, with romance, with death itself, where I've, I've written a number of, of short film ideas where a character who is essentially me in a heightened sort of way, I guess, you know, same name and everything, but uh, he, he has conversations with a physical embodiment of death every morning. Uh, the idea just sort of struck me that that you know, every single morning that I wake up, you know, is is the choice to turn away death. I guess, you know. So, I've I've written many many of these now. I don't even know how many, over a dozen at least, over the course of about four or five years, and I think. And it's not even just death. Like I've had conversations in these stories where I've I've met with Odin, uh, and I've met most recently I, for Valentine's Day I met with with Eros, Cupid. Um, they just sort of resonated with me in their moments. The these stories about you know what what it would be like for me as a real flesh and blood person to meet with these abstract entities and forgotten deities and to sort of write myself into their stories i guess where where death is this enormous impossible unknowable concept what would it be like to to have a conversation with death and you know and there's a lot to interpret in in how i choose to present it as i've always said like in in the stories death is always a her and you know, I, in the script, I always describe her as being beautiful. You know, she has, she has kind eyes and dark hair, and she is beautiful. So I think there's something certainly to analyze in the idea that death would appear to me as a beautiful woman. That's that's just how it is, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's very like it's very very Neil Gaiman esque as well, because that's what how he very much so yeah yes. interpreted death as well, and I think. Um, yeah, Neil, Neil Gaiman definitely inspires me in a, in a number of ways. Like reading the first time I read The Sandman a few years ago, I was just immediately struck by how he presents stories, like as as bigger entities than than just writing on a page. Yeah. How how they traverse ideas and and dreams and you know I I couldn't hope to be at Neil Gaiman's level. He's far far better read than i am if nothing else he's he's read every book under the sun seemingly so yeah. yeah um but that is one thing that i i do strike the similarities in terms of the story structure and, and and just idea structure is very much that like um ethereal element to it mm. but also the the humanization of it all and 
also the um, there is a whole thing of like my appeal to abstract and also like I, I have a huge obsession with legends and ideas and I think that there there is very much like t- stories like Odin and stuff which I love um, do stand the testament of time because they are kind of also like these moral compasses and they're kind of like how we see the world mm. and I think also like a lot of those characters aren't black and white they're very grey they're kind of like all a bit assholeish and they're not perfect and yeah. um but i think that a lot of a lot of the stories you know like that's why i like tales grim as well like all in um every one of those stories that you know they don't have a positive ending they're not always great they're not always like the reality kind of gives you these different like outcomes and and i think that's the kind of the best way to tell a story um you know war of the worlds is a great issue hmm. <laughs> wells did heaps of stories where it's like hang on i don't think we got the best deal out of this situation yeah um you know like invisible man um uh griffin dies and you know is not actually everyone's like oh he's the protagonist and it's like actually no he's a bit of an arsehole on the book and uh yeah. he deserved to die a little bit in one way but also probably not because the, he did get attacked by a mob so um yeah there's like elements to every story that we interpret um that do kind of have a real life element to it but i often think also in my own experience every story i write is is like a heightened version of myself and i think that's how we as artists always trying to inject ourselves into our narratives yeah um it's just a common kind of like self-analysis as we said before like psychology Mm. um to kind of write i've definitely worked on on scripts or stories where i have actively tried to not make myself the lead character like yeah you know one one thing i've tried to do a few times in in recent years is write more uh when i write scripts write more for women i guess because yeah. when i was younger I, I really struggled to write for women and i think i've i wanted to be better at that and so working more and more at it because i think women have you know, a lot of incredible stories that even now when we're a much more feminist society, thank goodness, there's a lot that isn't being told, a lot that isn't being understood. And obviously it would be more important for women's women to tell women's stories than for just men to tell women's stories, obviously. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely room for me personally at least to be more understanding and willing to to tell more stories about women and be give more actresses a chance with stories you know with plays and films and what have you that i write for you know for example i wrote the last major thing that i wrote was a was a play that i'd been tinkering with for a long time and i very much set out with the goal of it one day getting on a stage still do but i wrote it for the lead actress, which is our mutual friend Brinley there. Like, yeah. I, I knew I wanted her to play the lead role. And so I wrote based on both what the demands of the story were and what I thought would work with her to both work to her strengths and to challenge her as well and work around the the, the needs of the story to to do something that would be exciting and interesting for her. So, you know, that's just an example of me trying to be better to to women in my stories, I guess. And 
some stories don't always end happily and some stories end ambiguously, I guess. You you just have to find a way to be honest with your stories, I guess. Yeah. Like, that story doesn't end particularly happily, <laughs> but not not entirely sad either. Some, and there's great beauty in sadness sometimes as well. Yeah. Isn't that what melancholy means? Like, just, hmm. you know, a very melancholy feeling of life and everything. But, I mean, like, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like some of the best stories do have a kind of, you know, not always necessarily sad, but not always necessarily happy outcome. Um, you know, one of my favorite films ever is Roman Holiday. Hmm. And it doesn't have a necessarily great outcome. They go separate ways. And in the end, that's the end of the story. But it's kind of one of those things that I remember watching when I was little, going, how dare they make this movie? And nowadays going, actually, that's kind of also what life is. It's very much, you know, beautiful, but it's also kind of tragic. Yeah. And I think also, yeah, it's it's the ability to tell these stories and, you know, that I love doing and kind of going, well... You know, there's so many different stories that we could potentially tell that make me go, you know, shed a tear or, you know, sit in a cinema and I've bawled my eyes out and cinemas have no shame in doing that. I love, mm -hmm. I love, I used to go and see films alone and sit there and cry my eyes. But I think that you're 100% right. There is, there are more opportunities for women now. A lot more female actors are, you know, I tend to write more for girls now, but I tend to write in a voice that is kind of my own, so that I project a little bit, but also, you know, like, I remember, you know, like, take a prime example of Doctor Who, where it's now recently had Jodie Whittaker, she's been doing a fine job. The series may not be always written fantastically, but that's a more of a critique than I actually blame it on her. Yeah. Um, it's nothing to do with her performance. But I remember one thing, when that was, before that was announced, when Peter Capaldi was going, I'm leaving, I got so, like, pent up with rage. I was like, they have to cast a girl now. They have to do it. And I was like so nervous when they announced the, like, the date and they were like, oh, we're going to announce it then. And then the announcement came out and it was Jodie. I remember just going, finally, like, thank Christ. Like, I'm so happy right now. And I didn't sleep. I think I woke up at 3 a.m. and couldn't get back to sleep. Wow. Um, but it was like, because it was one, it's my favorite show in the world. But two, it's also one of those things where I thought, this is such a this is such a great opportunity because it, it, you know, I know so many girls, I grew up with so many female friends who loved sci-fi, but they never saw themselves in sci-fi. Yeah. And now they, you know, and I remember something that, you know, a lot of people have been saying now is like, oh, I can actually now see myself as the doctor, not as the companion. And, and to me, it's just kind of like, yeah, anyone can be this character. Like anyone literally can be the master, the doctor, like anyone can be. You know, um, like, I think, you know, I always compare Tomb Raider to um, Nathan Drake. Like, you know, Lara Croft and Nathan Drake are pretty similar. And, like, you just put the two of them together and you're just kind of like, okay, your personalities are very close. You could just yeah. be one gender or the other. But 100%, like, writing female characters, I think Sigourney Weaver and actors like that really set up, like, a... a thing for strong female characters but now there's a plethora of just different characters with the strong weak you know whether whatever you need know, the side character the sass character like there's just so many more characters that are out there that you see these people growing in this industry that used to be very male dominated mm. and one thing i'm very lucky and fortunate to work with is not a lot of female camera operators and female techs i never growing up thought that was a thing and there are so many male techs out there there's so many te male technicians and you know I think coming into this industry and being like, 
and you know I work with a female technical director and every morning I'm like hey how's your day like but I I just like talking to her because she's easy to talk to she's approachable but also she knows what she's talking about but there's so many other people you you know and you know but then they get overshadowed by these male ones and I'm like hang on he knows less than she does and I will always point that out and be like she actually knows more she's senior to him so go and ask her like it's amazing how common that still happens yeah and I say it to anyone who's in a, any production or something it's like okay don't talk to the director if you want to ask something about this you go and talk to this person because they are the head of that department mm-hmm. and um yeah it's just to me there is a gender there there is needing to be more technical female techs and more gender diversity back there yeah. but it is changing it is like slowly getting there but it's it starts, I had this conversation today, it really starts at the base of the problem, which is the hiring process, mm. where you're thinking about where you're starting. And it's good that, you know, we talk about like films and storylines changing, but it really comes down to, you know, female directing and, you know, female writing and more of that, because it really does start down to the base of just who are they employing? If Very it's all men, so. um, I think there was a couple of Doctor Who seasons where it was all men and that was, and then Chibnall signed up and there were suddenly lots of different ethnicities and, you know, um and and quite a lot of like things that I never even thought that and there was like an episode which I really love which was set in India and due to the partition of India and I thought holy crap that's awesome like they're actually talking about these things that uh never would have thought Doctor Who would have done in any recent <laughs> history which is not to say it shouldn't but it really should because I think to have diversity we're very you know as two white you know privileged people indeed and yes <laughs> i think it's like in our position of power it is a good opportunity to use that power and then try and help people who you know and go no you go ahead of me because opportunities and and like hopefully many opportunities to, to come and we can share those opportunities and become equal partners in this long escapade yeah um yeah i, I What's your thoughts on that? Is that kind of like also where you're hoping that the future goes? Absolutely. Absolutely, I am. Uh, last last year, the only thing that I got on the stage was a, a short play uh, with Short and Sweet um, where the, the cast was just two women. Uh, it, was a, it was a female story about fe- a female experience, two very different but connected female experiences relating to abuse, uh, heavy stuff, you know. Um, and although I wrote the script and directed it, I chose in the marketing to downplay my part in it. I, I said that you know, script and direction curated by by me or something. I picked a word. I think I feel like it was curated um, because I wanted it to be the story of of these women. I wanted the actresses to be the the most prominent thing you saw and you felt about because. You know, I I just sort of shaped an idea around a story I'd been I'd been given essentially to to give them an opportunity to to really shine more and and I, I stand by that like I think that they did wonderfully well with the story and I think that they deserved to be better better acknowledged for their work than I than I was you know it was. It was a story of women, so why would a man be the one who, who takes all the credit? And so I, I I turned most of it down, like I, I downplayed my presence in it, and I think it's important that we do work on having more diversity in the theater because 
so many plays are written about men or have a principally male cast and the industry is divided into mostly women and a shockingly small number of men almost across the board like you you'll get you get three or four times as many women audition uh, on average as men if not more depending on the show like it i guess it's a whole stigma thing for a lot of men that you know arts are for women and uh, yeah. sports are for men it's, to it's, be fair i i'm terrible at sports but yeah, me too and i i know too many people talk to me about sports and i go i have no idea what you're talking about but hmm. nice to know that you're interested <laughs> Exactly right. You know, I'm not not here to disparage sports at all. I'll let someone who actually knows about sports do that. <laughs> um, but that's a hundred percent true, and I think um, it's it's funny that you know I remember theater being criticized. Um, and you know, if you worked in theater and you worked on film, you were considered you know um, queer or you were considered gay if you're a guy. And it's so not true. Like, there's so many people who work in different capacities in theater and film of you know like of all different um sexuality preferences mm. and it is just a plethora of finding different people and we are very fortunate in that regard but you are 100 right that the board you know the, the broad spectrum of women who are it was funny like every time i put a style ad out the amount of men to the amount of women who audition i get a hundred women i get like five guys and i'm like well that clearly shows how many like yep. people are out there and how many people are interested i, I i'm sh- i couldn't tell you how many women i i know who have played a man at least once in their career just yeah. and a, as a background character or you know just at university studying they just they ran out of ran out of men so you can play a man and i i cannot imagine what that must be like especially if it happens to you a lot i know a few people who definitely had to play men more than once i cannot imagine what that does to you if if you're Especially if you're personally very feminine. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's not my experience. I've only, I've only ever played characters who were much older than me. And I can tell you that weighs on me like crazy. <laughs> hey, do you want to grow a beard and play an old man? Yeah, all right. <laughs> hey, Peter, you want to play a, like a, a, a seance provider who like sits there and just like worships ghosts? Yeah, all right. Is he, is he old? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got gray hair. Oh, oh fuck. Oh, sure. <laughs> For you, Marty, anything. It's like, <laughs> he doesn't. But <laughs> but he do kind of just want... I, I think the discussion of him having a turban came up across, and that was your idea. That so. was my idea, yes. So he, he might he, get a turban. He might have a turban. Excellent. Like, um, but he gets a full beard, so... I'll have to regrow that. Yeah. I can do that by June. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, we're filming in June now. But it'll be nice and cold, so it'll be actually good season. Uh, um, yeah, not summer when it was actually like piping hot. Um, which was when we were originally going to film. I'm so glad we didn't. Thank you, COVID. <laughs> Look, thank you, random spike in Northern Beaches. Yeah. You. Every time. Every time. Every time. Um, can I just say, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It's literally just love listening to you, one, your voice, and two, just just your stories. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Marty. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, too. Um, and yeah, this is the Things You Do podcast. If you want to check out more episodes, please check me out on Apple and Spotify, and I will speak to you all later. Bye-bye. <laughs>